I, I, I have a couple of things. You ready for this? This is a quote from a client at a, um, a homeless shelter. He said, homelessness separates you from society. Really, you do become separated from society because you don't live the same as other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Homelessness is just a vehicle for isolation. Yeah. That's the piece at the end of the day. Because I know sometimes people talk about somebody moving in to a home and then moving back to a shelter. I think at the end of the day, humans will do anything to not experience loneliness. Like isolation and loneliness are the thing that I think at our core is potentially the most lethal. So we we say in recovery, isolation is a killer. Mm. It kills us. Yeah. 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 And And you're seeing governments actually start to get that a little bit mm-hmm. like england has a minister of loneliness which is a really terrible title by the way yeah. but <laughs> but this recognition that actually loneliness has all these severe social health consequences yeah. um mental and so, health consequences yeah. exactly yeah. and so i just think certainly in frontline there's a lot of language thrown around around a person who's like well they're trying to get attention or they're trying to do this and i'm like they're trying to exist. Yeah. They're trying to be recognized yeah. as existing. Yeah. And all of us do that. And yeah. all of us we want to be that. heard. Yeah, we, we want to be, be heard. heard. Exactly. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the Recovery Connection, episode number five. I'm so glad you can join us. Please join us live on Facebook if you're not already there, and YouTube at 8 p.m. on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, where I will be chatting with friends in recovery and community organizations on topics that are important to not only us, but to all our local communities. The Recovery Connection is available on all our major streaming platforms such as Spotify and Google. And please follow us and like us and share us on your social media accounts to stay up to date on uh, upcoming conversations, upcoming guests, and uh, news that we may uh, want you to know. And visit us at our website at www.jerichoroad.ca. I like saying that really quick. (laughs) www.jerichoroad.ca. To uh, learn more about Jericho Road and uh, what's going on in our community. Now, let's get right to it because I'm very excited. Today's episode, we have Kate Burkholder-Harris from the Alliance to End Homelessness. Now, I'll be up front with everybody. Jericho Road is a member of Alliance to End Homelessness. And so we got to know Kate and uh, the Alliance two years ago, I guess. Yeah, that's when Yay? I started. Yeah. March 2020. March 2020. Heck of a day. Why does that seem so long ago, <laughs> eh? <clears throat> Good golly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess I'm going to start off with just asking you, Kate, what is the Alliance to End Homelessness and uh, how long has it been around and and what you do there? Yeah. So, well, it's very exciting to be on episode number five. five I yeah, feel like yeah. I'm under the 10, so yes, it feels yes, very exciting. Yes. Um, in, the, in the importance <laughs> rating, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Top five. That feels awesome. Um, so the Alliance actually has been around for, I think, almost 30, 40 years. It actually was something. So we only learned this last year as we were sort of digging into the history. Um, But in the late 80s, a lot of service providers and the city actually got together in Ottawa and they started to see this need for increased homelessness was starting to happen. It was becoming more visible. And so a number of activists got together in agencies and said, we need 
something that's really focused on trying to end homelessness and that advocates for people experiencing homelessness. Um, So they started out, I think, as just sort of a group or a network, mostly Mm -hmm. to support each other and then also to do that advocacy, especially with the city and the province. Um, And then over time, it had become a full, I think, you know, incorporated nonprofit in 2010, but has really, I think, since the early 2000s had a pretty strong name because it was um, a lot of researchers that worked with community agencies. And a lot of what they did was this thing called the report card. And that's sort of what put the alliance on the map. So it's this whole thing of um, basically just assessing how are we doing as a community in Ottawa on homelessness and looking at the data. Um, So between that and there was sort of one once a year giant forum, like community forum, where all the sort of social service providers got together. Um, That's sort of what the alliance did for a lot of its kind of history. Now, when you say social service providers, give me an an example. Um, So... A lot of it are community nonprofits. Okay. So community, um, everything from housing providers yep. and nonprofit housing to obviously the shelters are all a part of it. Yep. Um, looking at having more folks who work in the violence against women sector. Um, and now we're at almost 70 different agencies across wow. Ottawa. Yeah. And so I think the Alliance has become a really big voice to be able to advocate for people experiencing homelessness and with people experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. That's become a huge part is making sure folks who have been on the street are part of our board, part yeah, of our staff yeah. teams, um, and really helping to lead and to inform the yeah. kind of work that we want yeah. to do. And, and 12-step recovery, we always have this saying, problem, solution, plan of action. And so what do you really identify as, as the problem? I know there's many issues surrounding it, but what, what, what would you think is the main issue surrounding homelessness right now in the city? So I actually think now it has become a lot more complex than what I think the core of homelessness is. And I I look at it like this, you know, a lot of what we talk about are, let's say the the classic things people speak to, right? Why are people homeless? Mental illness, substance use, those sorts of pieces, family violence, family breakdown. And I think what's really important is to look at the data and the fact that those things have existed as long as humans have existed (laughs) because we're human. But mass homelessness, what we see now with 235,000 Canadians a year experiencing it, and that's just who's recorded, um, that really didn't exist until it started to happen in the late 80s, early 90s. And by early 2000s, we'd hit this astronomical number. And the same thing that happened during that time was the federal government basically completely cut off funding nonprofit purpose-built affordable housing. So what type of number are we looking at in Ottawa? So in Ottawa, we see about 8,000 folks a year who experience homelessness. Interestingly, I think because people were not going to the shelters this year in the same way, um, one, there was a moratorium on evictions, so people weren't getting kicked out as much. Um, And also, I think people feeling afraid of the shelters to some Mm. degree, despite best efforts, more people outside. The numbers are going to be lower this year, even though COVID, you would think it might be even worse. Yeah, it might be have the reverse. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I always say is there's there's an intersection uh, that we see of homelessness, addiction, and mental health, mm-hmm. and how those three things r- really occur uh, together quite often. Mm-hmm. And so what is, how do you see those three things occurring yeah. with homelessness? Yeah, and I think, I mean, you look at the history too, and you think when... 
community institutions or when they stopped kind of having any kind of mental health institution, people were discharged and didn't have safe housing, affordable housing. And I think that's a big part of it in that, you know, somebody's experiencing mental health issues or experiencing substance Mm -hmm. abuse. And without having access to affordable, safe housing, Mm -hmm. it becomes that much harder to recover and to find healing. And so I mean, to continue that, that, that journey that they're on. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So I think starting at everybody needs like that basic piece of, I need a safe place to stay. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be able to get better necessarily in a shelter or sleeping alone at night. Yeah. But having that safety, I think, yeah. is a really key piece. Yeah, and we, on a previous podcast, uh, we were talking about uh, survival mode, mm-hmm. right? And how exhausting survival yeah. mode is. Yeah. And, and how it's hard to, to accomplish anything yeah. when you're in survival mode. Totally. Because all your energy is going towards keeping that roof over your head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so your focus is, is just on that. And so doing anything else becomes nearly impossible. And I often think people aren't aware that like homelessness and poverty are a full-time job. Yeah. Like it is beyond a full-time job. It's yeah. 70 hours a week. You're trying to survive. And you're the thing I hear a lot from folks is I'm just walking. Yeah. I'm walking all day. Yeah. <laughs> There's nowhere I can sit. There's no public spaces yeah. where I don't get moved along or shuffled along. Um, you know, services are only opened at certain times a day. So there's that part of just having to constantly be moving. And then there's this other part of trying to get things, you know, go to this appointment, go to this appointment, get this referral, go to this appointment. And, you know, without the safety and consistency of like, okay, but I get to go home at night. I get to have a safe space to do all those other pieces. Or or for the mental aspect of that alone, knowing that I do have a safe home or a safe roof over my head mm-hmm. to go to. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I know we don't want to, we don't want to really uh, point fingers or anything, but we, you and I did have a brief conversation on, on the change in government services, not only in Ottawa, but provincially, federally. Do you think that um, we're, we're on this train where government services are slowly being eroded? So I, th- I think that, and I'm glad that we did have a early, early interview <laughs> before this. Um, I think that the, the, bureaucrat- the bureaucracy that gets in the way of helping people, we understand why it exists. We yep. understand when you're using public funds, blah, blah, blah. You have to be cautious with that. Like that makes sense in some ways, but I think it's gotten to a point where we don't see the goal yeah. and we don't see the person. Yeah. As you and I were chatting before, it's it's not just the fact that there's steps and steps and steps that a person has to jump through yeah. when they're in a state of survival and crisis, yeah. right? Like it's, you know, here's a referral, here's a referral, fill out this form, fill out this other form that says the exact same thing, but slightly different with a different font, yeah, yeah. right? Like the level. <laughs> and I just think, my goodness, I can't like if I call Rogers, I lose my mind. Yeah. Like this is ridiculous yeah. that this is what somebody in a crisis is going to have to do. And so I think that's something that's a culture shift that really needs to happen in how we design serving people at a system level is we need to start thinking about it as like every step that we add to this process is one more step likely that a person's going to not be able not to keep be able, going. Yeah, yeah. It's a barrier. <laughs> or, Every or step become, becomes a barrier. Or become yep. disenfranchised yep. In, in having to do that. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> when you start to see cities that are succeeding in reducing homelessness, this is one of the key things that they focus on. So yeah. a good example is, um, and I'm going to forget what the acronym stands for, but the EPIC program yeah. in Toronto. Yeah. So it's an evictions prevention 
intervention something coordination yeah, yeah. i think so if you called their city so 311 yeah. in toronto and you said want to get into the epic program you are trans like transferred to somebody who can actually get you money to prevent you from you know losing yeah. uh your place in six minutes is yeah. the average yeah. like six minutes of i'm in a total housing crisis i'm about to get kicked out yeah, to, yeah. okay we have yeah. some funds that we can support you with if it's arrears we can navigate or negotiate with your landlord and somebody is on the end of that phone who has enough authority to actually be able to help rather than kind of pushing it up the chain until you talk to somebody, which, as we said, wastes everyone's time. And mm. it just becomes all of these barriers for somebody to be able to mm. really like survive in mm. a lot of ways. And the whole idea is, is to take those barriers down so that the process becomes a lot smoother and it becomes easier for someone to accomplish mm. what they need to get done. Totally. One of the things that, that you were just talking about, I want to talk about your uh, open ed article that was in The Citizen. And and I made a few highlights because one of them you just talked about, um, where was it? Just give me a second here. Where was it? It Was was it out west or something where they were um, having this this program that, that was working well and that their rate of uh, homelessness per 100,000 people was really low? I can't remember. We'll come to it. The first thing I want to talk about is in this article, it says, we ask you to rethink how you look at the people in your community experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And that hit me. Yeah. Why is that important? So I am not the person behind that article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is 100% uh, the team of folks with lived experience that we've hired, the expert steering team. Uh, and they wrote this op-ed. And, and I we think, should give them their credit. Eh? It was Benita Aurora and Sophia Kelly Langer. I yes, hope I pronounced that right. I think so. Sophia Kelly Langer on, yeah. on behalf of the whole team. Um, but they did a, a fantastic job. And, and I agree. I read a lot of pieces of this. Mm -hmm. And it just was like a gut punch yeah. every time you read it. So, and, so that was the gut punch for me. Yeah. We asked yeah. you to rethink how you look at the people in your community experiencing yeah. homelessness. Yeah. So it's a new lens, right? So I, what's what's what what lens do most of us? Well, do we see somebody with any lens? There was actually a like U of T or a Ryerson study that showed the part of our brain that lights up when we engage with another human being. Mm -hmm. When walking by people experiencing homelessness who were panhandling, that part of the brain was not lighting up. And I think, holy, like what does that say about how we are thinking? like unconscious bias or not, mm -hmm. but how we're actually thinking about people in poverty experiencing homelessness. <clears throat> the thing that I was thinking about also is the conditioning. Yep. What have we done to ourselves to yep. condition ourselves to walk over that person's legs on the sidewalk? Yes, yes. Without and, batting an eye. Yeah, and that that's become normal. And that's and that's the norm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, and I want to like, it's messy stuff. In that I do have sympathy for the fact that, you know, I think especially when someone's panhandling, like people feel awkward, yeah. right? We don't know how to engage. Yeah. People may not be as informed. They may not need know what to say or what to do. And I, to be honest, feel like a bit of a jerk sometimes saying hello when I can't support with funny money if I yeah. don't have any. Yeah. If I don't have like, I don't know, a cigarette or something of value to help. And so I feel like a bit of a jerk to be like, this person doesn't have to talk to me. <laughs> like, I'm just a whatever. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. this person has no need to talk to me. But I also think it's that idea of just being a human. Yeah. And if if that other human's like, I don't want to talk to you, that's also yeah. fine. But um, I think that idea of somebody 
being recognized, being looked in the eyes yeah. is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that we always say in recovery is sometimes I just want to be heard. Yeah. I just want someone yeah. to hear me. Yeah. And, and I get that. Yeah. I get that. Another point in this article, it said, when does your neighbor become your neighborhood problem? Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of what this group was really wanting to address, I think, is the stigma and the vitriol that in particular has come about during COVID, where I think more people have been home, more people have seen more folks on the street who are homeless, yeah. more people have been desperate in staying in encampments. It's increased visibility. Um, people just not having social services to go to during the day or programs. There's no public washrooms. Or, or, the, or the services are reduced drastically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so people are seeing more folks, but also I think some have been extremely positive and trying very much to be supportive and donating and trying to do caring mm -hmm. things. Um, and then you also see this backlash, right? This huge amount of backlash that started to come being very, very critical, very stigmatizing language that is just dehumanizing in the most significant way about people who are experiencing homelessness mm -hmm. in, in the market in particular. And I think also towards social services and social service staff, we've heard lots of stories about neighbors actually like just yelling at people yeah. on the street who don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think it's that idea that are the people who are in your neighborhood, whether they have a house or not, are they actually residents? Mm -hmm. And I would argue that, yes, yes they, they are they residents. Are. So I, I'm going to give you my, uh, my experience with this. So I live out in the suburbs. I live in Barhaven. And uh, we were out shopping and uh, I was with a, a friend of mine. And we came up to a major intersection, Strandherd and uh, Green Bank Road. Mm -hmm. And there was someone who was panhandling at the intersection. Mm -hmm. And my friend looked at me and said, well, when did this happen? And the first thing I thought was, what does he mean by when did this happen? Mm -hmm. He is a part of our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. He doesn't live downtown. Yeah. He wouldn't come from downtown to Barhaven. <laughs> to Strandherd. To, to Strandherd and yeah. Greenbank Road yeah. to Panhandle. Yeah. So he lives here. Yeah. So he he's a part of our neighborhood. And then reading this, give me the big light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. He's our neighbor. Yeah. He's not just a part yeah. of the neighborhood. He's our neighbor. Yeah. And so, you know, there's there is... Um, it's almost like a classification, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what do yeah. we do about that? Well, and it's interesting because it's something I've started to see just significant backlash from residents who are not homeless, but, um, you know, and, and I don't think this is everybody. I think it's a few folks mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, but you know, the NIMBY thing, not oh, in my backyard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And what I think is so strange is every time that there is an affordable housing building going up in a neighborhood, it often, not every time, but a lot of the time, there's significant backlash from a community. And it's so absurd to me because I think, how on earth are we having a referendum on who gets to live here? Yeah. Because we do not do this for anybody else that moved into this neighborhood. Yeah. And the thinking that it's acceptable or okay yeah. to say, you get to live here uh, and yeah. you don't. And I remember in our yeah. pre-conversation, uh, pre, uh, you and I were having a, a, mm. a, a little chat about this because I yeah. was like, you know, when, when you explained it in that way, it made me realize it's like, it's like if I go to buy a house on a street and, and do all the other houses on the street get to have an election to see whether I can move into that house or not? Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. So, so why do we 
get that perceived right. Yeah. I don't get it either. And the only way that we can justify that perceived right is if we have a hierarchy of who is valuable. That's right. Right. And that's inherently, I would say, wrong. What value are you bringing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which brings me to the next one. Overrepresentation of populations and homelessness is not indicative of an individual's failure. It's indicative of the system's failure. Yeah. And, and I can relate to that hugely, mm-hmm. right? Because as someone who's in recovery, you know, I always say, I didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm going to become an alcoholic today. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not a choice. Yeah. It's a system of things, of trauma that happened to me that... I figured out the only solution that I had that would take that fear, that hopelessness, Mm -hmm. and that guilt and shame away was a drug. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. And that just, you know, it it just one thing led to another and and there I was. Yeah. And this this is the same kind of principle. Mm -hmm. No one wakes up and says, Yeah. Hey. Yeah. You know what? Let's be homeless next month. Yeah. That's the plan. Going to write it down <laughs> in the calendar. Yeah. I'm going to save some money. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. So so what is what is the system's failure? Yeah. So, I mean, this is like the thing that drives me in life in general. <laughs> um, I used to do frontline social work and I really felt the need. I love my work. I love doing community mental health. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Also drove me bananas yeah. because... of what was happening had very little to do with the person and everything to do with the system that was blocking them at every corner. A lot of it with housing and a lack of housing. On the one hand, I just think so much of what we see, we love telling ourselves the story about individual failure because that fits with the scheme of pull Mm -hmm. yourself up by your bootstraps, which from a visual perspective is not physically possible. So I don't really understand how that's been a thing that we've all gone along with, but that's an aside. It sounds good. It sounds good. Does it though? Like, I don't know. So it's the sort of thing that I find uh, just so frustrating because we love putting that up front and we love this concept of merit, right? And earning things. And we don't think about you know, well, what neighborhood you grow up in? Mm. You know, what access to schools did you have? What access to healthcare? Do you, do you have dental care? Because mm-hmm. that has a whole lot of effects on your health in general. Did you have the money to afford your medication growing mm-hmm. up? Did you have, you know, the chance because your parents had time to help you get to extracurriculars, mm-hmm. which opens all these gateways? Like, there's so many pieces that we like to think we got there because of our own merit. And i think most humans are pretty average, myself included. <laughs> and to me, like a truly equal society is actually one where average people can live a decent life. Right, and yeah. that we point to these stories of people who have grown up in really adverse conditions. And we say, well, like they got through and look at them doing this. They're a CEO now. And I'm like, yeah. but that's the exception. Yeah. And like most people who are middle class, we're not exceptional. Like yeah. we just we got through it. We well, had a good speak for yourself. No, okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm not at all. And I, I think that that piece is something we don't think about. And so then when you start to understand the challenges of the actual system and have to work within yeah. the system. Yeah. And the thing I compare it to is anybody ever had a parent trying to get into long term care. Yes. That's maybe the one people yeah. can relate to. And then you start to see the cracks. It's, it's and it's not only the challenges, but. I also see the complexities of it. Yeah. And and it's so multi-layered, multi-faceted. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah. once again that goes back to to those obstacles, right? Yeah. 
Um, in the article, there was a line that said, even before the pandemic, more than 50% of Canadians were living paycheck to paycheck. People are often only one paycheck away from finding themselves without a place to live. And I don't think for a lot of us, we understand that. Mm -hmm. Coming from a point of view from uh, where I came from and being an alcoholic and being homeless, going into recovery and, and you know, going to work and da da da, you know, to a meaningful job back, back into the workforce and whatnot. I live from paycheck to paycheck mm -hmm. for years. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand what living paycheck yeah. to paycheck is and how stressful mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. Because you know, in the back of your mind, yeah, that if something terrible were to happen, you got sick. Yeah. Your, your business closed down, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're one, two week paycheck away from having to go to your landlord and saying, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Can I, can I get an extension? Can I get some help? Can you be understanding? Can da, 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 yeah. da, right? Yeah. And so <clears throat> when you say 50% of Canadians are living to paycheck to paycheck, what type of outlook does that give us mm -hmm. moving forward when it comes to homelessness? I mean, I hope people can see themselves in that. Like, I hope that they can start to think about, wow, if I had, really know kind of beyond the two weeks, not really sure if I was going to make it, yeah. um, what that would do to their, to change sort of where they're at. I mean, I'm, people probably know, but I often say like, we have to keep naming how much people make on social assistance. Like people yeah. make, what is it for OW now? It's like 700 730 and or something. Seven, yeah. It's like, it's below 800. Yeah, yeah. And then of course you get, I think it's like three something cut if you're not you know, if you don't have a home, that's so that's right. your rent portion. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's managed to get housed for 300 something dollars, but it's not really possible. Yeah. Well, and phone so. Kevin at Jericho road. If you do, please. <laughs> I thought you had a waiting list, <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but no, that's I meant it. for me to find housing. For oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, and then ODSP Ontario disability support is 1170. Exactly. exactly. And the average one bedroom rent in Ottawa is I think it's like 1170. I should know this. It's on yeah. our website, but I, mean, I think it's, it's like 1170. 1170. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, that's exactly it. And you start to think about that. And then families, like when you have kids yeah. and you know, those pieces, I just, I wonder sometimes I find when I talk to people outside the social service bubble, when I'm at a party or I'm chatting with folks, as soon as you just name the hard numbers, people start to get it when they start to just basically do math yeah. and they're like, huh, how would I ever survive yeah. on that much money? So, so this is kind of uh, front page for me because of COVID and, mm -hmm. and everything that we've just gone through. The Trudeau government gave out $2,000 a month in CERB, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yet, if you were on welfare or ODSP, you weren't eligible for CERB. Yeah. So basically, Trudeau is saying that a livable wage is $2,000 a month. Yeah. But we're not going to let other people. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of, I mean, the nuance there is provincial versus federal. Of course. And still, of course. But the idea still, behind it is still the same. Yeah, exactly. So what are your thoughts on a living wage? I mean, a living wage, you're not asking about income because I have different thoughts on yeah. income. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's a level, right? We yeah. know there's a level that is like basic level of dignity that people need to be given no matter what situation they're in. And I think 2000 may well be it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think we saw something there in that number that seemed to hit, I can survive on this yeah. for the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think that changes is again, if you have kids or more dependents yeah, in your course, home, of course. but I think it gave us a bit of a context for what that could look like. So living wage wise, a hundred percent. I do think the the messiness of this is when we have to look at, I know there's a desire for min come for everyone. And I think that you see sort of a mini version of minimum income with rent subsidies. Yeah. Bear with me. I know people are like, I don't really know, um, but rent subsidies. So they top up your rent basically. Yes. And it's like a government program that you can get. Um, and what we've seen, even in communities with high vacancy rates, yeah. landlords knowing that that money is out there and the market doesn't respond to the vacancy. So basically landlords charging more because they know they can get a rent sub. So there is this tension where there is a level people need for basic dignity. But I think there is also if you don't do work on regulating the cost of housing or regulating the cost of other pieces, you're not going to be able to get the desired outcome completely. So I think there's a balance that has to be a part of that. So how do we achieve that balance? I mean... I shouldn't say socialist, but I'm like pretty comfortable with, thanks, Jonathan, I saw a thing. And it's not, I think that actually, and this is getting probably too much, but I do think like socialism and capitalism can actually work decently together in that let's provide the basic quality services that people need that are like in the core of what humans need to function and be able to go and thrive in their communities. So to me, School is a big one. Childcare is a big one. Healthcare is yeah, a big one, yeah. including dental care and eye care mm-hmm. and housing. And if we got those ones truly compensated for people and said, we're going to make sure that you're able to access good quality, affordable housing, which means a lot more is going to be nonprofit yeah. and not open to the private market and yeah. speculation. Can, we're you, can you say long-term care home? Also long-term <laughs> care. It's a part of housing, yes, right? It's on that, yeah. that continuum and people need different types of housing in different parts of their lives. So yeah. I think it's that idea that, you know, we get those pieces right. And that becomes the foundation for people to be able to thrive and to be part of their community and to be able to work and to do all these other pieces. But like you said, survival mode, I'm not looking for a job if I don't know if I have a safe place to sleep tonight. Yeah. It's just not happening. Yeah despite that many people in shelters work full-time jobs. And and not only that, but I can't contribute to the neighborhood or the society that I'm living in if I'm in survival mode Yeah, because I'm too occupied with trying to survive, survive, to live. Yeah. Here's another one. The fact that people experience homelessness is a cue that we are not doing the best we can for our communities. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We can just do better. Like it just feels so absurd. Ottawa in particular we're, I think, the wealthiest median income in the country. And frankly, after this pandemic, our biggest part of the workforce in Ottawa is the federal government employees and the high tech sector, neither of which is suffering during the pandemic. Those are stable, solid jobs. And I think if any city in this country should be getting it right, we should be the city that should be getting it right because of the amount of wealth that is here. And so, I mean, but beyond Ottawa, I think just as a country, countries figure this out. Finland has ended homelessness and it took mass investments in affordable housing and it's Mm. massive investments in the right things. Yeah. So permanent affordable housing. So it says here is the healthiest and most cost-effective long-term option to dramatically reduce and truly prevent homelessness. So for our listening audience, what is permanent affordable housing? Because we hear it. We hear hear that, that three word phrase all the time but what is it so and you're not gonna like this answer it's different things (laughs) for different people but it's the idea that you don't have to leave 
It's the idea that, you know, I'm going to be able to stay here as long as I want and not have to worry about having to find another place. Um, so to that end, like I know transitional housing has a role to play sometimes, yep. but I also think it's ultimately the safety of knowing that it's permanent and that I have chosen my home and I'm living here. So, I mean, that can be somebody in the private rental market, but who is getting their rent subsidized in order to be able to make that affordable for them. And they may move, they may have, you know, saved up enough to be able to, you know, purchase a small place yep. or something like that. Um, for others, it might be home ownership. For others, it might be I actually, you know, want to be able to have that sort of safety in like a nonprofit or a co-op. Yes. Um, and I think it's that wide variety of different kind of housing options and knowing that it's going to be different for people at different times. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of people that do live in co-ops and mm -hmm. Ottawa has, I think, quite a few of them. Yeah, we do. Why aren't there more? So this is a funding piece for sure. And I think as well, I mean, if, if you start to dig into it, um, there's some great work on the right to housing idea yeah. that's happening right now at the international level. And a big part of it is we have a housing market, particularly in Canada, that is housing has become just a place to accrue wealth, yeah. right? You buy a house, you let it sit for four years, yeah, yeah. then you sell it. And in that time, it's somehow increased by one or $200,000 yeah. and you've done nothing. Ottawa's increased by, I think, 25 to 30% in the home ownership market. So then that gets pushed down to every level. So then the people who used to be able to buy housing are now renting. So the prices go up because yep. they have a bit more money. Yep. And I think that ultimately the challenge is if everything is driven by the private market and there's not a balance of more nonprofit housing where shareholders are not holding the expectation on the other end of things to make money via rent, you're going to start to have more balance in the housing ecosystem. And a lot of nonprofits need to be subsidized by the federal government to be able to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time I've heard, you know, a lot of housing providers be like, look, it's not the capital. The building's actually the yeah, easy yeah, part. Yeah, it's yeah. operating yeah. because affordable rents are not going to be able to compensate for the cost of running this yeah. nonprofit. The increase mm -hmm. constantly increasing exactly. cost exactly. And, 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 and maintaining that building yeah. or buildings for because a co-op. It goes back on the provider. It doesn't go back on the yeah. individual. Yeah. So real true, I think, funding of community-based affordable housing is so critical to making this actually happen. And that also I think there's more regulation on on how we develop zoning bylaws, yeah. how we do densification um, on the private side. But I think really investing, you know, European countries that have figured this out, you see like 20, 30, 40% of their housing markets in cities are uh, nonprofit. Yeah. So I think there has to be a lot more of that if we really want to see changes. Especially as, as, we, as we move uh, forward in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know that I was reading an article the other day that said the next generation, which is my son's generation, has a 50% chance, less chance of owning a house in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time that's ever happened in Canada. Yeah. And that, that blew me away, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, because that's, that's not the Canadian dream. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think when you want to talk about equity across different, uh, different racial groups, like home ownership is intergenerational yes. wealth transfer. Yes. Right. It's the idea that how are people getting housing now? Their parents are getting yeah. them a, a down payment yeah. because their houses have yeah. increased in value. Um, and that's how you're doing and that. That's what this article was saying yeah. about the intergenerational wealth. Yeah. Because, you know, someone like me doesn't have 
that wealth to pass down mm-hmm. to my son. And so yeah. he's now that first generation mm-hmm. that will not have that wealth, yeah. Yeah. inherited wealth, mm-hmm. to be able to provide at least the down payment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that just, that was shocking to me, mm-hmm. shocking to me. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to talk about, because it's really important to me, because we run into it in addictions and, and mental health all the time, is the stigma surrounding homelessness. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. what can we do about that? So, I mean, I think putting people with lived experience um, and their voices as an expertise group Mm -hmm. um, at the front and center is really critical and listening to people. And I mean, one of the things that I often wonder is, you know, disservices, do we really believe people when they tell us what they need? Mm. And I think that's something that is an ongoing thing, especially when you get into a system, it's hard to ask those questions. But I think that's part of it is we talk about person-centered care as a buzzword, but Mm. I think that idea that, you know, this person's maybe asking for an unusual thing or, you know, but people are different and people need different things. And so I think a lot of the time really zoning in on the fact that this is a person with unique needs is not going to be the same as anyone else. (laughs) You know, some of the basics might be there, but really being able to address people individually helps to kind of peel back the layers of what stigma is. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is people, um, I think in kind of an exploitative and kind of gross way, we tend to really hold up heroes, quote unquote. Like we're like, oh, this person has survived and I'm so inspired by you, right? That story, we hear that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when that person was not doing so well, there can be a lot of judgment and a lot of stigma, right? And so, and well, we only like you when you succeed, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) that seems like a pretty rough, you know? And I, I think sometimes one of the things that gets create stigma is we're really uncomfortable with allowing people the dignity of failure yes. because everybody else is allowed to fail. I'm allowed to fail and I don't get, I don't lose my housing. Yeah. First of all, I yeah. don't lose my income. Like I'm allowed to fail and yeah. I have enough of a safety net to catch me, but also, you know, I'm not judged. And I just think when somebody's already had the worst set of blows in their life and they're in a position where they, they misstep even a bit like yeah. that, the level of judgment and the level of just, no, you don't get the dignity of failure, yeah. right? Like, and I think that's what it really comes down to is there should be space for dignity as somebody doesn't do the, the right thing, quote yeah. unquote. Yeah. And in many cases, it is the right thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's the right thing for that yeah. person well, especially, in the moment. Yes, given, given, given the choices that they're facing at that moment, yeah. how do we know, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, NIMBY. You knew I was going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not in my backyard. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things um, that we're starting to see across the country, which is exciting, and I really hope we start to see it in Ottawa, we're, we're kind of gunning for a couple champions, but Yimby. So yes, in my backyard. Yes. And rather than even taking a neutral stance, what does it look like to say, we actually really welcome an affordable housing yeah. building into our neighborhood. We, we think we're the right community for yeah. it because we'd like people to be a part of our community. And we, I don't know, like to have a community garden and find ways to figure out what being a neighbor is. And I think that's something that actually really can happen. I think we've seen many versions of it with the refugee assistance program. Yes. Like humans get this. People understand what it is to rally around people. And I think we could do that as well. But to shift from, no, we don't want people living in this neighborhood, not just to neutral, but truly to actually, we want to embrace people in this community. 
and make it a community where everybody can actually live because it makes everyone's neighborhood better when our neighborhoods are diverse and we just get a better understanding of the world when our neighborhoods are not homogenous, you know? So I think it's really shifting that kind of 180 from moving to sort of this really negative space, but also to how could people be a part of our community and seeking it out? I mean, I think one of the other things just from a zoning piece with, with NIMBY that I think does need to happen is right now we do site by site zoning applications. And some communities, I think when they start to see more success is you set your overall goal for affordable housing and then you build the affordable housing. Yeah. There's always a number to it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not just, okay, this, this is going to become a battle that referendum again for who gets to live in this neighborhood. You change that. I think that's a really important piece that is going to have to change just in zoning bylaws to be able to really see a decrease in that sort of level. And interestingly, there's um, there's a great podcast a while ago with Ezra Klein talking about how in a lot of American cities specifically, but I think the same is true in Canada, of quite progressive cities and neighborhoods being the ones that actually block affordable housing and things that I think progressives believe in, mm-hmm. in part because they value consultation. But consultation becomes this opportunity to just say no. And so I think that like alignment is is very interesting, but I think ostensibly from people who probably are liberal in their ideas and their values, but when it comes to being in their own neighborhood, think differently Mm, about it. Yeah. Here's the big one. You ready? What can we all do? Okay. So it's funny because I feel like I haven't actually talked at all about (laughs) um, communities are ending homelessness. It's a real thing. Uh, It's happening across Canada and it's really important for people to think about examples. So Edmonton has reduced homelessness by 43%. That was the city. Is that with the city? That was the city. It's my go-to. They're the same size as Ottawa. They're actually bigger. Um, And they've done it by what I would say is like a huge culture shift. And one, starting to think of resources as collective across all agencies. How do we use our data and our collective resources to figure out how to help people move through the system? Coordination is a big, big piece of that. And then I think with like a relentless housing first focus. So you know what? You're going to be in survival mode until you have a safe place to stay. So let's focus on that. And then let's focus on the other pieces. Um, but those pieces have really been kind of the the pillars of changing how they've dealt with things. And Edmonton is one. Alberta in general actually is like the winner in Canada, <laughs> I would say, for seeing significant changes. And part of it, being in a city that has very, is, we're a very bureaucratic city, as we all know, we tend to be risk averse. And I find that Albertans from the cities, and I've had a chance to work with a lot of these communities. There's just a willingness to give it a shot, like yeah. just to try something yeah. and try things that are new. There's nothing so, wrong with rolling the dice. There, well, yeah. <laughs> and I think what's, I mean, the head of the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness talks about don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, yes. right? And I think we get stuck sometimes in trying to do everything perfectly that we end up doing nothing. Yeah. And so a lot of the Alberta communities, Medicine Hat has effectively ended homelessness. So people still become homeless, but they're rehoused into permanent housing. Within, I think it's under five days now. They've done an amazing job. Same with Calgary. They had the largest homeless um, shelter in North America, reduced their numbers by about 50% in two years. And that was by, again, this relentless focus on getting people housed. 
um, and the supports that come with it. I think that can, I haven't said that and I should say yeah, that it's really important. I, I was going to jump in when yes. you were done <laughs> yes. and say, uh, you know, along putting the roof over the head is the first step, yep. but having that support network behind it. A hundred percent. Because, you know, my experience for myself was it's great that, that you gave me an apartment, but yeah. if I didn't have the, the mental health support and the recovery support yeah. and then the social service support and the food support and, mm -hmm. and all those things to go with it, yeah. I wasn't going to survive anyway. So yeah. it's multifaceted, but yeah. I mean, we need, we need to start somewhere, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the same with, you know, food insecurity versus hunger. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of us don't grasp that whole idea that, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm not eating the right food, then I need more dental uh, work. I need more uh, visits to the doctors. I'm yeah. not getting the right nutrition and on and on and on. Yeah. And the same goes with the housing, mm -hmm. right? If I don't Absolutely. have that roof over my head, then I'm not getting access to those yeah. services and those systems that are out there. Yeah. What else can we do? So, I mean, the thing that I know people always are like, oh, everyone tells us to do that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to blame things on the government because yeah. we elect governments yeah. and governments respond to what voters want. And when voters say enough is enough, nobody should be homeless in a country as wealthy as Canada. If we made that an election issue, yeah. you don't get in unless you take this seriously and not just by investing in private development only, yeah. <laughs> which is what we've seen a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. That's what changes the tide. That's what actually gets it done. And I think that you look at some of our biggest crises happening in the world today, climate change and housing, to me, are sort of the two that I yeah. think of. If there's no planet, <laughs> all the other issues are irrelevant. Yeah. Um, and if people aren't housed, what housing can do to exactly, as you said, all of these other major, major yeah. social issues, if people are housed, it actually prevents so many more social challenges. And, and not only that, but for you know the average person, let's talk about the money. Yeah. We either pay for it now or we're going to pay 10 yeah. times more later. Yeah. So yeah. let's start, uh, stop quiggling about the money. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the studies are out there. The research yeah. is out there that if we, we don't start addressing these issues right now, mm -hmm. they're going to cost us far more in the long run. A hundred percent. Well, and I wouldn't even say the long run now. A rent subsidy is like seven or eight hundred. And you look at the price of what it costs for one family in a hotel to be staying is about yes. three thousand yeah, dollars yes, a month. Yes, yeah. Three thousand versus yeah, seven hundred. Yeah. So it's a huge cost. And I think the frustrating thing is, you know, shelters are all trying to do housing. Yes. And their housing is cheaper than the shelter costs, yeah. but they need the funding pathway to get them to be able to From do a more and more to of B. that. Yeah. 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 And so I think that's a really key piece. But again, it all comes down to your city councilor, your MPP, yeah. and your MP have to be on the hook. Like don't let them off the yeah, hook. Yeah. Call them, bug them, call them again. Leave messages. Yeah. Get other people in your neighborhood to say that it matters. And I think every level of government, I like to kind of break it down. The feds invest in like buildings and capital. Really, when the Fed stopped doing that, that's when we created homelessness. The province invests in services and they have the money for operating costs and services. And we have to push on them for that. And municipally, it's all zoning. It's yeah. all about zoning regulations. And I think a lot of the time, other levels of government like to point at each other and say, we can't do every, anything except for what the next guy does. Yeah. And the reality is even the city government actually has more tools in their toolbox mm -hmm. to get these things done than we like to know. They don't have much money. I'll give yeah. them that. But there is a lot more that each level of government yeah. can do 
um, than is doing it. Yeah, and so if you if you don't understand what what levels of government pointing fingers at the other looks like after the past year, then there's a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've yeah. had a, a front row view. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Before we go, do you have anything you want to talk about? <laughs> Um, Anything that this I is, miss? there's no time to talk about this, but I actually wanted to talk about trauma oh. and yeah, I know 10 minutes left. Super easy, easy peasy. Wow. Um, but just for you to speak to the role of how trauma factors into addiction, because I think it's something that I thought everyone understood. And I realized that everyone does not understand and just how much it's it's that question. I know it's being said more and more, but rather than saying like, why did you do something? It's like, what happened? Yeah. At Jericho Road, we're very, very big in advocating on what trauma is and what trauma does. And um, um, about four or five years ago, a bunch of scientists got together from uh, different places in the world and they realized that, that trauma uh, was a major contributing factor to our social lifestyle, our, our mental well-being, our physical well-being, and they have this thing called the Adverse Childhood Experiences mm -hmm. Test. And, and it's a series of 10 questions. Mm -hmm. and, and the more questions you answer yes to, the more likelihood you are to have uh, smoking cigarettes as an adolescent, to committing suicide, to using substances uh, on mm -hmm. a daily basis on and on and on having mm -hmm. heart attacks and strokes and and mm -hmm. and whatnot and what they found was that the average person has two adverse childhood experiences and an adverse childhood experience is a traumatic experience now it's a perceived mm -hmm. and real traumatic experience because what may be traumatic for me may not be traumatic yeah. for you and vice versa and what we do know is trauma not necessarily is the event or the action that happened but how you respond to it and how it's affected the inside of you. We know that that trauma is a contributing, contributing factor to a whole bunch of things, but the main one being um, substance use. Yeah. And because we have had something or many things happen to us as individuals, uh, usually between the ages of three and 12, and we, we've never been able to process those events mm -hmm. or deal with them. Yeah. And so we end up living in constant states of fear, mm -hmm. of guilt, of shame, resentment. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we um, deal with that is through substances. Mm -hmm. Because we've been introduced to something that has taken th those feelings away. Mm -hmm. Albeit for a short period of time, They've taken them away. Yeah. And, and luckily, our government now has put those on every corner mm -hmm. with liquor stores, beer stores, and now pot stores. Mm -hmm. And so instead of providing the, the teen or adolescent with the right mental uh, health and help and recovery to deal with those traumatic experiences, we've allowed them to go and figure it out on their own. Mm -hmm. And the quickest and easiest thing are substances. And those substances can, can range from uh, many different things. A lot of us deal with our, our trauma through other substances. We, you know, with gambling, shopping, uh, food, mm -hmm. uh, busyness. Yep. The more severe the trauma, 
the more trauma that has happened in an individual's life, the more likely they are to use substances Mm -hmm. because the pain is so strong Mm -hmm. that they need something other than buying a lottery ticket or eating a Big Mac to take that pain away. Yeah. It's like we were saying earlier in the podcast, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to become a drug addict today. Mm -hmm. No one does. Who would want that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Yeah. But faced with living inside of my head and the constant fear that I'm experiencing from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and we may land in slightly different areas on the, on the harm reduction spectrum. Cause I do think it's, it's helping, it's keeping people alive. For right? sure. For sure. But I think that idea that in those different stages, people are doing the thing that makes the most sense based on what's gone on. I don't disagree. Lives. Yeah. I don't yeah. disagree. Yeah. Because, yeah. because I don't really have any other choices. Yeah. And, yeah. and unfortunately, our healthcare system, and I, and I praise this country all the time that we do have a beautiful healthcare system. It's not without its faults, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of merits to it. Yeah. But trying to get someone who's come to Jericho Road the necessary mental health support that they yeah. need mm-hmm. can be a year to a two year process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even separating you know, substance use from uh, mental health yeah. is so weird, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't, doesn't make any sense because no. people are whole people. That's right. Complex. It, it's, it's, it's all the big ball. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah. the models, the models that, that we're, we're, we're realizing now that don't work, the models that came from years ago were that addiction had to be treated by these people and mental health had to be treated by these people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we know now that they go hand in hand. Yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a separate issue. Yeah. It's, it's, we have to take a, a holistic approach to this and treat the whole person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's another battle. And, and, and part of that, as we go back to what you and I talked about is we need a roof over our head to get those things started. Yeah. Basic needs, right? Like yeah. we've all had, potentially a parent or somebody like a caretaker be like when you're hysterical or when you're not doing well have you had sleep when was the last time you ate food like yeah. when those yeah, yeah. basics yeah. right like yeah. hungry angry lonely tired exactly yeah. halts like yeah. it all comes back to those basics yeah exactly and just like you know we're pretty we're pretty basic when yeah. it comes down yeah. to it so yeah. we don't take care of those pieces yeah 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 absolutely well listen i have thoroughly enjoyed this time thank I you i just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming here and doing this and i think not only did i uh, learn a lot but I, i'm hoping that um, all our listeners are going to learn a bit more because once again we can't all do this uh, on our own it takes a community and it takes a neighborhood mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, uh, jericho road is a part of the alliance to end homelessness because I I know that that it's going to take all of us. Yeah, 100%. And there is a solution, right? Yeah. There is a solution. It's a million different solutions that equal a big solution. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate the conversation. And and this was a very cool format to actually just have a chat. Yeah. About about these different pieces. So thank you. You're more than welcome. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, Remember, for our Voices in Recovery podcast in two weeks is uh, Darcy C., 
and uh, I'm really looking forward to having him on. I know there will be a few laughs and maybe a few arguments, but uh, nonetheless, it will be entertaining. Trust me. And uh, Kate, once again, thank you. God bless you. And uh, keep up the good work that you're doing. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.